Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 41, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for the many very smart, very insightful letters we got about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl slash Magical Negro episode. I'll read you just a couple of sentences from one of them. This is a letter from Thomas Minnick. He said, what this whole controversy illustrates, to my mind, is first, how hard society is trying to purge itself of racist and misogynist thinking by parsing and policing its language. It also reveals the aerobrosion nature of trying to use our language and simultaneously guide its evolution. Keep the great conversations coming. Aerobrosion, I think wow. that you would agree with that if, in fact, you know what that word means. <laughs> aerobrosion? Are you kidding? Uh, no, I've never heard it before. Well, aerobaros is this sort of ancient symbol of a snake or sometimes it's another animal eating its own tail. So it's supposed to represent cyclicalness. And I think what he's getting at there is that when you suppress a certain term, then the term that takes its place will eventually take on the negative connotations of the thing it's describing, which is something that you brought up in the Manic Pixie episode. Right. Great word, man. Yeah, I know, right? Great word. I've never seen it as an adjective. I've only seen it as Ouroboros, the, the name of the symbol. But, uh, yeah, I might have to trot that term out sometime. It sounds like a Silicon Valley startup, doesn't it? If it's not already, it should be, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you feel today, huh? We got to guess a new word. You got your boxing robes on? You trotting out to the arena here? Mm. Look, here's what's going to happen, Mike. You know, Ben Zimmer's going to come on. He's going to give us a clue, a maximum of two clues. You are going to have the word in a heartbeat— uh, as you did last time, 
and I will be feeling silly and impotent, as I did last time. That's what's going to happen today. All right. Well, let's see if you're right. Let's bring him out. Hey, Ben. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, good. So I think we're going to start this week with a very brief review of our first linguophile episode, Discombobulate. You've since told me that it's the only word in English with the letters B-O-B in the middle. You know, I looked for other words that have Bob in the middle. It was the only one uh, on a dictionary search that I found. You can have a word with Bob at the beginning, Bob at the end, like thingamabob. So discombobulate was, you know, the only word that really fit that clue. I still didn't think you were going to get it so quickly. That was, uh, I was pretty amazed. And this time around, I'm really going to try to make it a bit harder so it takes more than three seconds for you to guess the word. In the one second it took him to figure it out, I was here... In my home studio going, buh, buh, buh. <laughs> Yeah, and the clue was meant for you. It was designed for you. And, uh... Well, I got nowhere. <laughs> Let's get on to this week's word, which, of course, we don't know. And you're going to give us a clue. That's right. So this is going to be a little harder than last week, I'm pretty sure. I think that the word is a little more obscure. And hopefully this clue that I give you will uh, make you uh, scratch your head a little more. Okay, do you guys like anagrams? Sure. All right. Who doesn't like an anagram? I'm a cryptic crossword solver. Oh, boy. He's a cryptic crossword solver. Well, that, that and means I'm you're... dyslexic, so between <laughs> us. <laughs> well, cryptic crosswords, of course, involve lots of anagrams, so maybe this will be uh, right in Mike's wheelhouse yet again. Okay, so the word that I have for you is an anagram of another word. That other word is appealing. Can we write this down? You sure? Obviously, no, no Googling or... <laughs> yes, please, no Googling. A pleacal blip. <laughs> Do I have it? So close. So close. <sighs> you know, uh, anagrams uh, are... I think I got it. What? <laughs> no. What is it... Cut it out. You do not. Is it, is it lanyap? It is lanyap. That oh, is correct. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Waiter, check, please. <laughs> wow, that, that was good. Okay, so I stretched it to, what, 10 seconds, maybe? Yeah, although, you know, once again, I feel like I was primed to guess this word oh. because on this week's episode of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, I don't think this actually made it into the episode. I think I edited it out. Mike Pesca used the word lanyap. Well, I'm guessing that the way Mike Pesca used it was to mean a little something extra. I think of it as, you know, like the 13th donut in the baker's dozen. That's a good way of describing it. Yeah, exactly. Once again, I don't think I know anything about the history of this word or even its etymology. I'm actually going to write those letters in the word appealing out to spell lanyap, which is kind of an oddly spelled word. Well, you just take the last four of lanyap and you got the first four of appealing. That's true. But it starts off L-A-G-N-I. A-P-P-E. Maybe looks a little Italianish to me. Or French. Yeah, or French, right? Bob it, says French, Mike says Italian. Well, it looks, yeah, it looks like there's a Latin root in there somewhere. The GN thing does look Italian. Like gnocchi or something like that. Right. For example, yeah. I'm going to say that there's a root for the word light in there somehow, and that this word is pretty old. I'm going to go Middle Ages. Some sort of medieval Italianate word, yeah. as Mike is guessing. And Bob, do you have any uh, ideas? You oh, were guessing I'm, French. I'm going to go French. It, it sounds like a dish that you would be served in New Orleans, right? It looks like something that Paul Prudhomme might have whipped up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Bob is much, much closer to the truth this time. There's, oh. no, there's no Italian in this. It certainly is not uh, medieval. It does come to English by way of French and specifically the French spoken in New Orleans. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you might not know your anagrams, but in this case, you're, you're right on the money with that. All right, so it's got some sort of Creole flavor, mm-hmm. but how did it get to New Orleans to begin with? Well, like a lot of things with Creole flavor, it has this very interesting kind of hybrid background to it, crossing many cultures. And if you want to go back to the beginning of the story, you have to go to the Andes in South America, where the Inca Empire was based, and the language that was spoken was Quechua. So when the Spanish came to South America, and of course they were intent on conquering the Inca Empire, they had to learn Quechua. And Quechua is still a language, or sometimes it's described as a group of languages that's spoken by millions of people in South America. It has official language status in Peru and Bolivia and Ecuador because it was used as a kind of a lingua franca even after the Spaniards conquered the Inca Empire. I got to say, Ben, I didn't know that a prerequisite for conquering people was learning their language. Well, (laughs) it may help. It may help. And of course, you know, the Spaniards had various other things that they wanted to do. They wanted to evangelize, for instance. So the Roman Catholic Church had to learn Quechua in order to converse and try to uh, convert people. Mm -hmm. So there is a word in Quechua that is the ultimate root for lanyap. Yapa can be a noun or a verb. I believe the verb form is yapai, which means to add something. And the noun yapa means a little extra, something that's added to the principle of something. And so in modern-day Peru, this practice of adding something a little extra called yapa was used, and that term, along with the practice, ended up spreading all around Latin America with uh, slightly different forms, but mostly yapa or nyapa. And was this used like adding something a little extra physically in in the way that you would add an extra donut to a baker's dozen? Exactly. Or a 13th bottle of wine in the Nyapa Valley. (laughs) Very nice, very nice. (laughs) So the term actually, yeah, does get used a lot for merchants. There's another usage Remember the silver mines, those were really important, obviously, that why the Spanish wanted to conquer that region. And this Quechua word yapa was being used to talk about the small amount of quicksilver, mercury, that had to be added to the silver-bearing ore if you were involved in the smelting process. So it was a little extra thing that was added. Mm. But the way that it spread around Latin America was in this kind of exchange between a merchant and a customer. So an example of an account of Yapa that was written by a woman named Dora Hort. She wrote a travelogue. She was going eventually to Tahiti, but she stopped off in Chile in the town of Valparaiso, and she talked about this peculiar custom in Chile of giving what they term a Yapa on the occasion of any purchase. And she talks about going to the fruit market and buying these wonderful fresh figs And the first time I selected the number I wanted, the girl placed them between leaves in my basket and then laid another half dozen on top. I imagined that she wished me to buy an extra quantity, and I shook my head in the negative when she smilingly explained that it was for a yapa. Yeah, from Chile and the heart of Incan civilization to New Orleans, it's it's quite a trek. Did it gradually move its way up through Central America like, you know, killer bees? (laughs) That's pretty much what happened. Um, There's a really interesting... uh, 
account of this word that was given in the journal American Speech in 1939 at a time when the practice was probably dying out in both Latin America and New Orleans. But the author of that traces a route. You start with Yapa in the Peruvian Andes, and then as it spreads through other parts of South America, Yapa becomes Nyapa. It makes its way across South America, reaches the coast east of Panama, crosses the Caribbean, and then it ends up in Puerto Rico and the eastern end of Cuba. Those areas are important because in the late 18th century, when New Orleans became part of New Spain for about 40 years or so, there were a lot of these Spanish-speaking people from Cuba and Puerto Rico who were coming to New Orleans. And so, you know, that's the great thing about New Orleans in the Creole culture. You have this mixture of, you know, Afro-Caribbean, Spanish speakers, French speakers, all creating this hybrid, you know, gumbo culture, as they call it. And as best as we can tell, it was people from those areas, from uh, the eastern part of Cuba, Puerto Rico, who brought the word and the practice to New Orleans, probably in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. So we have that word that came originally from Quechua and then eventually sort of moved into Spanish as Ñapa, spelled with that Ñe, the N with a tilde character, A-P-A. But when it gets used in French, when the French speakers and Spanish speakers are mixing it up in New Orleans, you add that la definite article from French, and you get la ñapa. And that eventually gets mashed together to oh, form the single word la, la ñapa. So if you want to Frenchify something, just add a la to it. Exactly. Hey, Mike. Yeah? This is kind of a phonic version of misled and misled for me. Uh, we've discussed how... <laughs> I knew there was a word misled, and I knew there was this word that I read, misled, that I you know, realized were synonyms. <laughs> but I never made the connection between the G-N sound in Italian, yeah, like in gnocchi, and the N with the tilde over it in Spanish, which like in manana. It just never dawned on me that they were exactly the same sound. Well, we don't really have many words that start with that nya sound in English. So especially when it enters English, that French la in the beginning of it may have sort of eased the pronunciation and led people to think, oh, this is a single word, not la plus nyap or nyapa. And it really, really takes off in New Orleans in the late 19th century. And we get all sorts of different accounts of it. For instance, there was a writer named George Washington Cable, this great writer from Louisiana and a great observer of Creole culture. He describes a couple of words that ended up entering Louisiana French from that Spanish occupation. And he talks about the terrors of the calabozo with its chains and whips and branding irons. So calabozo was this word that meant dungeon or prison. And remember, this was still a time of the Spanish Inquisition. That word, he says, was condensed into the French trisyllabic calaboose. Then he says, the pleasant institution of Nyapa, the petty gratuity added by the retailer to anything bought, grew the pleasanter, drawn out in gallicized lanyap. So that was a, a pleasant word as opposed to uh, calaboose from calabozo, which was this uh, rather unpleasant word from the uh, Spanish occupation. Although I guess the dungeon keepers could maybe sweeten the deal a little bit and give their <laughs> prisoners a little lanyard. Thirteen lashes instead of just twelve. <laughs> well, you know, actually the guy who was sent over from Spain to uh, institute the Spanish Inquisition for New Orleans in this period in the late 18th century 
ended up being uh, kind of a nice guy. Uh, he's remembered quite fondly in New Orleans. Father Antoine, or Father Antonio, of course, since he was uh, Spanish, they say his ghost still walks the streets of New Orleans. And he's actually associated with this term, lanyap. He, it is said, he would walk the streets and the children would flock around him asking for a little lanyap. And he would throw them perhaps a, a small coin, a picayune. Picayune was originally a, a small coin, like a five-cent coin, I guess, for uh, in New Orleans. Or he would bestow blessings. But I think the kids were actually more interested in the coins than the blessings. Oh, yeah. I think I remember that uh, from the children's book, um, The Nicest Inquisitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a sweetheart he was. So, certainly by, the, certainly by the late 19th century, we get all sorts of different reports about how this was this wonderful cultural practice in New Orleans. Mark Twain talks about it in Life on the Mississippi. He says, We picked up one excellent word, a word worth traveling to New Orleans to get, a nice, limber, expressive, handy word, lanyap. It is Spanish, so they said. He goes on to explain how it has a restricted meaning, but I think that people spread it out a little when they choose. It was already kind of meaning something a little a little more than just that merchant interaction. But he explained, uh, just as Bob did, that it's the equivalent of the 13th roll in a baker's dozen. It's something thrown in gratis for good measure. And he says the custom originated in the Spanish quarter of the city. When a child or a servant buys something in a shop, or even the mayor or the governor, for aught I know, he finishes the operation by saying, give me something for lanyap. There was another account that I read from the 1890s that said that if you were in New Orleans, you would never expect to actually have to buy parsley, for instance, because parsley was a perfect lanyap, something that the vegetable seller could just throw in, give you a parsley or some other sort of small vegetables that you might use for your soup or a little seasoning for your gumbo. And that that was just the expectation that you would never have to buy these things. They would just throw them in. This may be getting beyond your ken, Ben. And also maybe beyond our Lexicon Valley portfolio, but I'm I'm curious, once once a gift starts becoming an expectation, mm. it ceases being a gift, doesn't it? Which is why it still sort of grates for me when I when I'm sent to a, a wedding registry in which an extravagant gift is an implied quid pro quo for an invitation. <laughs> or when the waiter but when I pay the waiter in cash and they say, would you like your change? And I always think, and I've not quite yet uttered aloud, yeah, I want my fucking change. And then I'll decide <laughs> what to do with it. Has Lanyap kind of outlived its essential Lanyapicity? <laughs> well, Lanyapicity, that, that's a fantastic word. I, in fact, uh, when I was reading up on the sort of the Lanyap concept in the late 19th century, there was exactly this kind of discussion, like, was it really a quid pro quo? Well, not really, because it's after the transaction is completed, and then you throw in the extra thing. You're not supposed to ask for it, although, you know, kids would probably ask for it. It was part of that social interaction, and it was a way that the merchant could ensure that customers would keep coming back to build that kind of loyalty and that relationship of trust. You were supposed to accept it willingly if you acted like you didn't care about it, then that was really going against the whole spirit of the thing. There was one description of this from uh, 1891 in a magazine called The Chautauquan, talking about this wonderful cultural practice and how we could all learn from it. 
The writer says, one who is accustomed to the quaint French-Spanish-African custom finds a disappointing stinginess of word and deed in a lanyapless country. It was that a local newspaper or was it like a national publication that complemented what I guess is the proto-TED, yes. the Chautauqua Lectures? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. The Chautauquan had these pieces that were intended to be read as, as open lectures. And so this was somebody kind of lecturing on this wonderful practice of Lanyap and how we could all learn something from what they do down in New Orleans. Bob, I got to say, I'm, I'm still atoning for me not adequately recognizing at the time your amazing pun with discombobulate. So I'm going to just tell you that I was very impressed with the connection you just made with the Chautauquan newspaper and the lectures. Thank you very much. Mike, that's very gracious of you. <laughs> so, Ben, um, this practice of lanyap, did it die out completely? And if so, why? It mostly died out. And the cultural practice actually had some other names uh, elsewhere, too. The practice in general, regardless of what you call it, seems to have died out quite a bit in the early 20th century. So another term that we can find, for instance, in the Dictionary of American Regional English, a wonderful resource, is broadus, B-R-O-A-D-U-S, with various other spellings. That's what they called this very same practice in the coastal regions of South Carolina and Georgia. The Gullah, who were descendants of African slaves in the coastal areas there and the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, use this word bratis, and it's probably related to a Portuguese word barata, which means a bargain, as we find that in Caribbean creoles. So both that word bratis and lanyap describe these cultural practices that seem to have fallen by the wayside. And I found an account in uh, 1910 that actually said the city of New Orleans was recently in a state of ferment over the edict that went forth that after that date, no more lanyap would be allowed to be given away. And so this article goes on to decry, well, how could you have New Orleans without lanyap? The writer says it's monstrous to think there will be no more lanyap given in New Orleans. The Crescent City without lanyap will be the carnival without the king. The taking away of it will assume the tragedy of removing an ancient landmark. Apparently, there was a, a movement to try to do away with the lanyap, but the lanyap exists mostly in a kind of a metaphorical way in New Orleans now. All right, Ben, once again, fascinating. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next episode. I'll keep working on it. I got to come up with some harder clues. So I'll, uh, I'll be hard at work finding something a little more difficult for you. Ben Zimmer is executive producer of The Visual Thesaurus, where you can find out more about the word lanyap in his Word Roots column coming out this week. He's also language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. You know what, Mikey? Yeah. We have given our listeners a new edition, a second edition of Linguophile, mm -hmm. and I'm sure it's, you know, much appreciated. But don't you think we should toss in a little something extra, something small, but, uh, <laughs> you know, gracious? I see where you're going with this. I haven't, I like the idea, but I haven't really uh, prepared anything. Yeah, neither have I. But I think we can furnish it, Mike, in the form of a song. You, uh, you've come up with another song for Baby Xander, and I think it is uh, <laughs> transcendent. Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. Wait, is this the one I sang for you uh, when you were over a couple weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is the one where I have to channel my Jewish grandfather who is now dead. But whose thick Yiddish accent lives on. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so here it goes. I'll just sing uh, one verse. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I'll fix myself a sandwich. For lunch, for lunch, for lunch. Let me go look what's in the fridge. Too much, too much, too much. Gefilte fish, a potato knish. Noodle, kugel, and a kreplach dish. Things what look hamintashin-ish. A bunch, a bunch, a bunch. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the vocal stylings of Mr. Mike Volo. All right, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. You can find us by searching for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store. Of course, I want to thank Ben Zimmer and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yep, we're done. Later, Gator. Some other words that have entered English that originated in Quechua? Condor, llama, and puma all come from Quechua. Hmm. Coca, like the coca leaf. Jerky, lima as in lima bean. Quinoa or quinine both come from that Quechua root as oh. well. I'm a frequent eater of quinoa. Well, I ate it today for lunch, as a matter of fact. And I take quinine for my yellow fever.